Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to the book of Daniel once again as we return after something of a hiatus from this wonderful book. Chapter 10 is where we're headed. Uh, Perhaps appropriate that the lights have gone out on us this morning, Uh, not because this is a chapter of darkness, but it certainly is one which uh, is full of, well, not just this chapter, but the rest of the book, full of things which uh, gave Daniel great uh, fright, even at times, not only what he saw, but also the words that he heard. And uh, so, no, this is not intentional. We are not trying to uh, bring a certain atmosphere here, but uh, hopefully we'll have this addressed. Nonetheless, we can come before the Word of God this week, and we can hear what God has to say from this prophet Daniel And uh, we're blessed to be able to get back to this again. Chapter 10, uh, what we're going to do is to just read the first six verses. We're going to look at just the first four in earnest this morning. Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold. Of Uphaz. His body, was, uh, his body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. The sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. This man is going to give a vision. This one that Daniel sees. We're going to look at that in some detail as we go along. This morning, what we need to do is get oriented to what's going on in not only chapter 10 but also chapter 11 and chapter 12. Uh, We need to get caught up a little bit on the book of Daniel in the process as well because where we find ourselves is uh, resuming a section that talks about a series of visions that Daniel the prophet received throughout the course of his time in Babylon. Uh, Daniel was a young man from the uh, territory of Judah, from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, who was brought to Babylon, the city of Babylon, and ended up in the royal court uh, as a young man with the conquest of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Uh, And we're going to look at a little bit of his history as we go as well. But what we're looking at this morning is Daniel's fourth vision. Daniel's fourth vision. This is the fourth of four visions that take up the second half of the book, and just to get us acquainted with where we are, I want to go ahead and jump into our outline that we have that you'll have here in front of you uh, and talk about an introduction to the vision. This is an introduction to Daniel's fourth vision, starting with the narrative setting of this vision. Where are we in the narrative? Where are we in Daniel's account of his life and of the prophecy that Daniel revealed? 
Uh, as we begin the book of Daniel, this is hopefully uh, a review for some of you who are here, and for those who are not, we'll help you get, a, to get caught up a little bit. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 was the introduction to the book. Daniel was taken captive as a young man and brought to Babylon. He was trained to be part of the royal court uh, of the Babylonian Empire. He was protected and promoted by God, along with his free, three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And chapter 1 gives the account of their faith and their steadfastness and their refusal to compromise in the face of pressure from this pagan influence. These idolaters who wanted them to do things that were against the law of their God. And Daniel and his friends said, uh, we're not going to do that. They prayed and they sought that there might be a way that they would not have to do that. And God graciously granted to them favor in the sight of various people among this empire to the point where they were ultimately elevated and that they were shown to be, as verse 20 of chapter 1 says, 10 times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all the realm. So Daniel... Uh, was promoted in the book, or excuse me, in Babylon. Uh, Chapter 1 is this introduction. Chapters 2 through 7 details for us uh, a series of messages that tell us about the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of man, or the kingdoms of the Gentiles. Chapter 2 through 7 are written in the language of the day, or the trade language of the day, the language of Aramaic. This was in contrast to virtually all of the rest of the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew. And this is appropriate because the subject matter is about the Gentiles or the nations. And the book of Daniel is about this in large part. How is God dealing with Israel during a time in which Israel itself is not uh, receiving the promises that God has given to them of the land Uh, of being a great nation, of being blessed and being a blessing to all the earth, of having a ruler in Jerusalem according to God's covenant with David who would then rule over the nations of the earth, ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah Jesus Christ. Uh, While this is not happening, what is the situation in the world and what is the situation of the kingdom of God and what is the situation of This nation of Israel. And so chapters 2 through 7 focus upon how God is the ruler of all the nations. And that his kingdom will one day take over all earthly kingdoms and will rule them all. And the proper response of all people and directly kings is the response that King Nebuchadnezzar ultimately had at the end of chapter 4. Where in verse 37 he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the God of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. His descendant Belshazzar, the king in chapter 5, did not humble himself. And so God brought him low and removed his kingdom from him. The message is that of Psalm chapter 2 that we as people and then directly the kings of the earth and the nations of the earth ought to bow the knee to God and to his anointed one to humble themselves and to stop opposing God and his rule instead submitting to God and to his rule. And so chapters 2 through 7 give us a number of uh, narrative accounts with visions involved in them that tell us about this rule of God over the kingdoms of the earth and how they will one day be his. When we get to chapter 8, Through the rest of the book, chapter 12, we find that 
Israel is still promised a glorious future according to all of the promises of the Old Testament previous to this and along with this and contemporaneous to this and yet this future that's promised is only going to come on the other side of great difficulty and great persecution and suffering and that this suffering and persecution will come in particular at the hands of certain Gentile kings. We saw in chapter 8 that there is a king in the second century BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, who would come and bring great, uh, who would come and bring great trouble to Israel, and then we'll find in chapters ten through twelve there will be more detail upon him and ultimately upon the final persecuting ruler, known as Antichrist. But at the heart of it is chapter nine, right in the middle, God's promise that He will fulfill all that He has promised and bring about redemption. For his people. And so, chapter 9, verse 24 says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. When we get to chapters 10 through 12 and the vision that's given there, we learn some specifics about how that is going to take place. The structure of the book then revolves around those ideas, an introduction in chapter 1 and then chapters 2 through 7 focusing mainly on the interaction of God with the Gentile nations and then chapters 8 through 12 talking about God's interaction with Israel and how they will be related with him during the times of Gentile rule through that and then ultimately in God's fulfillment of his promise. At the same time, the book can, can also be broken down stylistically where chapters 1 through 6 largely centers around narrative accounts and stories about what was happening to Daniel or to his friends or to the kings that he lived in. And then chapters 7 through 12, the second half of the book has to do, is built around a series of four visions. One in chapter 7, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, and then the one that we find ourselves arriving at in chapters 10 through 12, all of which really is one unit in these final three chapters. And so we arrive here having learned some important lessons along the way. We've learned that God is sovereign over all the rulers of the world and over all of history. We've learned that God has not abandoned his promises or his power or his kindness, even when really bad things are happening to his people, and even when things don't seem to be going according to plan just yet. We've learned that we should respond to God's faithfulness and God's power in certain ways as those who claim adherence to him and worship of him. We should, in fact, worship and praise him as the one true God who is the ruler above all others. We should be unwilling to compromise and to go after other gods or to give in to the pressure of the nations around us and the people around us who don't worship this God to do what they want us to do. We should be unswerving in our loyalty to him despite any suffering or persecution or pressure or disdain that may come our way because he is not only worthy of it but also is able to save us as he did miraculously in the case of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego but as he will ultimately do for all people one day when he rewards us at the time of the end. We've learned, in addition to all of these things, what we will learn more of in these chapters ahead, which is that God wants us to know the future so that we will have hope. And he reveals to us very specific things about the future so that we can understand it and be encouraged by it. 
So this is the narrative setting of the book of Daniel. This is where it takes place. This is when it takes place within the story of his life. And this is his fourth and final vision that he receives. It is toward the end of his life, as we'll see when we talk about the political setting of this in a moment. But Daniel gives, uh, receives this fourth and final vision for us to consider. Let's look next then at the political setting, not just the setting in the narrative, but the political setting. What is going on when this is taking place? Daniel tells us in chapter 10, verse 1, that this took place in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So the first part to know about the political setting is that it was in the reign of Cyrus. Now, when we come to this, we are immediately confronted with something of a difficulty because uh, we have read about a king, Darius, Darius the Mede, who is ruling over this. And then shortly after this, we find that there is a man named Cyrus who is ruling. Darius the Mede was ruling initially upon the conquest of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians. So it's kind of strange to hear about another king, another name ruling so soon afterward. And it makes us ask the question, what is the relationship and the timeline of these two with relationship to one another? Now, there is, outside of Scripture, no clear identification of this particular Darius the Mede in terms of by that name. Darius is spoken of in chapters 5 and 6 and in chapter 9. Um, And so it's possible that he is any number of other people that go by another name. For example, uh, a general by the name of Guberu or a general by the name of Ugberu, who would be a conquering general on behalf of Cyrus. Uh, Some have even posited that this may be Cyrus himself by another name. Um, On the other hand, it is quite clear from other passages of scripture that and other places outside of scripture that Cyrus was known by this particular name during this time and we'll see more of what he did in scripture but just as some examples he's the one who issued the proclamation in Ezra chapter 1 that took place in 538 BC he is the one who was predicted long before this by the prophet Isaiah as the conqueror of the kingdom of Babylon and the helper of Israel in its restoration uh, listen to this in fact you can Uh, Turn to these passages to follow along. Isaiah chapter 44, again written long before this takes place, long before Cyrus is even a thought. And uh, in Isaiah chapter 44, you have God in the midst of speaking about his sovereign rule over the, the nations and over really everything. Isaiah chapter 44, at the end of the chapter, verse Verse 26. Confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up. And I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. God prophesies that Cyrus will rebuild Jerusalem and Judah, will be instrumental in making this happen. He goes on in chapter 45 to speak of him further. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. 
For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Cyrus shows up to Babylon, conquering this mighty, mighty empire, the head of gold, in the statue that is there in Daniel chapter 2. And he conquers this, and lo and behold, the Lord has predicted it all beforehand. The Lord has called him by name. And he is the one, he says, who has given Cyrus this success. So Cyrus is tested outside of Scripture and in Scripture. Unfortunately, there are just not quite enough data points combined between the biblical record and these other historical accounts to definitively say one way or another what the relationship is and in particular who Darius is but what is quite clear in chapter 10 is that Cyrus is reigning and that he has been put there by God's power in order to do what God wanted him to do now that specifically involves the rebuilding of Jerusalem The rebuilding of Jerusalem. This is the other major component of the political setting back in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, it is in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that a message was revealed to Daniel. Cyrus conquered Babylon uh, some couple of years earlier. Uh, maybe two and a half years earlier and would have most likely counted his reign from the spring of 538. So he's just starting his third year here in the spring. That's why it says in verse 4, the first month, which would have come uh, around March or April on their calendar. So uh, two years earlier, when Darius the Mede is mentioned as having been the ruler, immediately taking over the kingdom after it had been conquered, from Babylon, now turning into the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, Daniel had read in the words of the prophet Jeremiah about the timeline for the completion of Judah's exile to Babylon. If you look in Daniel 9 verse 2, you will see this. And we looked at this when we studied chapter 9, but it's worth looking at again to just refresh our memory. It says, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which the Lord revealed as the word of the Uh, the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. What are those things that Jeremiah said? Well, there are two specific promises that will take place after these 70 years of exile have happened. Jeremiah 25, 12 tells us the first one, punishing their captors. Jeremiah promises that God will punish Israel's captors or Judah's captors. It says, uh, then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. Babylon has indeed been punished at this point when Cyrus is now reigning. The Medes and the Persians have captured the kingdom. They've killed Belshazzar the king the one who arrogantly exalted himself against the God of heaven in his great feast in Daniel chapter 5. 
So their captors are punished. The other promise through Jeremiah is for Judah returning to the land. Jeremiah 29.10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Return to the land. So Daniel understood this to be what would take place. And lo and behold, he prayed. He didn't just say, well, this is going to happen. He prayed. And Daniel chapter 9 is an earnest prayer that God would have mercy upon Israel and Judah, upon the temple, upon the city of Jerusalem. God sent him a vision that told him not only that his prayer was heard, but it told him far more than that about the future of Israel. But as it turns out, it is indeed the case that Daniel's prayer and God's promise did get answered or Daniel's prayer, rather, about God's promise, and in light of God's promise, did get answered, and God's promise was made good. Let's look at how this happened. Turn over with me, if you would, to the book of Ezra. To the book of Ezra, First and Second Chronicles. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, right there at the beginning of the book of Ezra. Two years before, two years before Daniel chapter 10, here is what is taking place. We will read some sections of the book of Ezra to understand where we are in the scope of history here. Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, what word is that? Well, of course, the 70-year prediction. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Look at what's going on. You have this pagan king. God has stirred up his heart to not only permit the rebuilding of the temple, but to encourage it and to encourage people who were brought into captivity under his empire to go back to their home, to go back and rebuild, and everyone else who is around them to support the people in doing that work. The men of that place support him with silver and gold, goods and cattle, all of these things. So he encourages them to go back and he encourages everyone else to help them in doing this. So he gives glory to the God of Israel. He says God has appointed him to make sure this temple gets built. And then he instructs that material goods would be built or would be sent as well. Now, in addition to this, look what he does. Uh, In verse 7, also King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And then he 
counts the articles. This was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls in a second kind, of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So they send all of this stuff back. And what are they going to do? They're going to rebuild the temple. Look over in chapter 3 in the book of Ezra. Now when the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brothers, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written, in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. So they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering, also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were, that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Then they began to actually rebuild the temple. And we see this Described in the verses that follow, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Henadad with their sons and brothers the Levites to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard far away. They start building the temple according to the promise of God and the provision of God through King Cyrus. However, trouble then comes. In the book of 2 Kings, we learn about the conquests of Israel, the northern territory, and then Judah, the southern territory. Assyria conquered the northern tribes of Israel some hundred plus years before Daniel and his companions were taken off into exile into Babylon. The Assyrians ultimately sent back people to live in the land of Israel, centered around Samaria, the capital of the rebellious northern uh, area. And in 2 Kings 17, we read about a number of people being sent by the king of Assyria into that territory. And it describes how these people worshipped the Lord, 
sort of. They sort of worshiped the Lord. They feared the Lord, it says, but they also feared other gods and worshiped idols. And they worshiped God if they did worship him in the high places, the wrong way. God was to them just one of many, the Lord God of Israel. He was just part of of their uh, multiple God worship. And so they uh, had this idea of the one true God, but it was far from true worship, far from what the Bible commands and commends. So they feared the Lord, but they didn't really fear the Lord, and they served other gods. Well, chapter 4, look what happens of Ezra. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, the heads of the father's households, and said to them, Let us build with you. For we, like you, seek your God. And we've been sacrificing to him since the days of Asarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. Hey, we worship the same God. Let's join in accomplishing his purposes together. You know anybody like that today? Cults, false gospels, false religions that want to say they worship Jesus, that want to say they worship the God of the Bible? Well, he may be among what you worship and among what you serve. And yet, if it is not exclusive, and if it's not only according to the way that Scripture describes, then it's not actually true worship. And we don't really have that kind of fellowship. And the men of Israel recognized this. Verse 3, But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. Nothing in common with us. Now, this is not the response that you would get from so many people today. They would say, we as Christians need to join together. I mean, going against these other nations, or we can at least work together and accomplish things with people who adhere to the same standards and the same moral principles. We can adhere to people who say that they worship the God of the Bible. And yes, I know that they're Mormon, or yes, I know that they're Roman Catholic, but and they have some different views on some things that are really important. But don't they worship the same Jesus, or don't they come from the same source? And... Here, these men have the right answer. You have nothing in common with us. If you do not have an exclusive devotion to the God of the Bible according to truth, then you ultimately have nothing in common. Now, this is not to say that you can't have a conversation and actually speak with people about things. It doesn't mean that someone has to be absolutely wrong about everything in every sense. But it does mean that fundamentally, Until this changes, then you have nothing in common with regard to true worship versus false worship. We ourselves, he says, will together build the house of the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Well, they didn't like that very much, as you would expect. The leaders say no, and so the people of the land get angry. Verse 4, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We ultimately learn at the end of chapter 4, work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And thus from 536 BC to 520 BC, there is no progress on the temple. It got started, but after not very much time, it had been ground to a halt by the opposition 
around and by the people who were building it not responding by continuing to build in the face of that opposition. So the return to the land has begun. The rebuilding of the temple has begun. God has kept his promise for that. It's very clear that God is involved because King Cyrus himself says, the Lord stirred up my spirit to do this. Here you have this uh, man who otherwise has no concern for the God of Israel who has been convinced and persuaded that God is the one who gave him this stuff in order to do this. And he issues this decree which is very favorable to Israel. So it's very clear that God is at work. This is not just something that is false hope. And yet it doesn't mean that the conflict is over for Israel. In fact, far from that. And while the building of the temple represents God making good on his promise, showing a sort of down payment, if you will, on his ultimate fulfillment of doing everything that he has said, the opposition to the building of the temple is merely the first sign that opposition to God and to his people and even to this particular nation is far from done. And the vision that then shows up in Daniel 10 through 12 tells us in all the more detail what exactly lies ahead for this nation. So as we go back there, this is what we're going to find. It is in this setting where the temple has now uh, begun to be built, but has been opposed and has ground to a halt, that Daniel is in a position far away in Babylon of trying to do what he can about it. Verse 1 says, In this first year, or excuse me, third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So a, a few months after they tried to begin building, and yet they were opposed and the building stopped. In this third year, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. We understand this name was given to him earlier during the reign of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar along with the names that were given to his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, this is here so that people will know who is being referred to. He would not have been known exclusively as Daniel. This message is revealed to him. And we find the message in these chapters. Let's consider, as we look at this message, the nature of the message that is revealed to Daniel. The nature of the message. And first of all, it is a message of great conflict. A message of great conflict. It says, the message was true. And one of great conflict. This is not just a message about a single great conflict or a fight. Uh, this is a message about the nature of what is predicted in the message. There will be struggle. There will be trouble. There will be difficulty. There is going to be battle going on. Conflict. Things are going to be hard. And this is a message that God's people then and God's people now need to hear and to know and to keep in mind. And it will always be the case until the Lord Jesus returns and until the promises of fulfillment of the kingdom of God take place, that even though all these glorious future promises are in place for Daniel and for his people, this future is only going to come on the back end of a great amount of difficulty. And there will be seasons of more or less difficulty for Daniel and for his people. So it is also today with us, even in the church, that we should not expect things to be easy. And we shouldn't grow discouraged when things aren't just as easy as we would like. When there is turmoil all around and when there is trouble, 
when there's difficulty, we shouldn't be surprised. When there is even satanic opposition to God's people, as we will read about a little bit later with this battle going on, uh, sort of in the heavenly realm, unseen and only revealed in pieces in this chapter. Uh, We shouldn't be surprised when there is antagonism in a world that is unredeemed toward God and his people and his purposes. We just simply shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be discouraged by this. We need to remember the words that the Apostle Paul and his fellow laborer Barnabas uh, told to the churches in Galatia in Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. After they had preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is just par for the course we have perhaps been lulled to sleep by a kind of ease and a cultural acceptability of Christianity. We have gotten used to this. We have gotten comfortable with this. The temptation, when that goes away and starts to go away, is to try harder to grasp and to maintain that than to hold to and grasp God's promises and knowing that God is near and knowing that God is our help. It is much easier to try to fix and hold on tightly to our circumstances than to walk by faith. And so while we pray, as 1 Timothy 2 says, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. While we pray that rulers might allow us to have that peace and that freedom. We also understand that it should not be unexpected if difficulties come. And so we are prepared when we understand this kind of pattern for anything. We understand that our hope is coming in the future and that it may come through great difficulty. Well, for Daniel, this message involves a lot of that, one of great conflict. We'll see it when we get to the details of chapter 11 that there is a lot of conflict that he has promised for his people. Daniel heard a message of great conflict, but we also learn in verse 1 of Daniel's understanding of the message. It was a true message, but it wasn't just one that was hidden. He understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. This is not surprising. Daniel 1.17 says that Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. But these phrases indicate something important for us that we've touched on in previous uh, times talking about this book of Daniel. But once again, it's worth emphasizing that we often approach literature like this that's full of future predictions and details, uh, even imagery and confusing things sometimes about who is being referred to. And we just come to it as if it's not understandable and as if it is even meant to be understood, that it's just supposed to be unclear. But Daniel clearly understood the vision. Now, this doesn't mean that Daniel knew the names of the people who would fulfill some of the promises or the prophecies that are here. It doesn't mean that he knew all of the dates. It doesn't mean that he knew every little thing that was going to take place. But it does mean that the vision made sense to him. He grasped the words, the sentences, the paragraphs. He understood what the vision was about and how he should respond to it. And so it is with us as well. We should have the same goal. Uh, sometimes, as a, uh, with the benefit of historical hindsight, we're able to look and to see, as we'll be able to do in some of chapter 11, what some of these details were. Who were some of the people who were described here? And it's a great blessing when we can do this and an encouragement to our faith. But just because we don't understand every particular detail in future predictions doesn't mean that the message is not understandable. 
it can be known and it is given in order to be understood. God does not reveal scripture, the truth of scripture, in order to hide that very message from us. And so while there are things that we won't understand, connections that we won't necessarily make, reference that will not be known until they actually take place or show up in the world, when God gives scripture and he gives messages and he gives visions he wants us to understand it as well as we possibly can and so it is here as well with Daniel 10 through 12 that we want to understand it and we want to pursue understanding what he has said now we arrive then in verse 2 3 and 4 at Daniel's answered prayer Daniel's answered prayer verses 2 and 3 in those days I Daniel had been mourning for three entire weeks I didn't eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. Daniel's answer prayer, it's time was three weeks. Three weeks that he had been devoting himself to this particular endeavor of prayer. He says in verse 2, three entire weeks. We will read in verse 12, uh, excuse me, verse 13, about uh, 21 days being the time that it took for the messenger to respond to this. What was Daniel doing during this time? Let's look at his attitude, his attitude of prayer. What was he doing? He was mourning and he was praying. Verse two says he had been mourning for three entire weeks. And then in verse 12, it says, uh, this messenger who comes, then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart on understanding this and humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. So here he has been speaking to God, telling God, pouring out his heart before him, praying to God. So he's mourning and he is praying. It is very interesting to note that Right at the beginning, as this messenger says, from Daniel offering his prayer, God already sent a positive answer to this prayer. And yet Daniel didn't know this. We wonder sometimes as we're praying, what is God doing in response to this? Is he going to answer? What will he do? Sometimes it may be the case, at least this opens the possibility, that God has already begun to answer our prayer before we have even finished offering it. We have no idea what the status is of our prayers before God until we actually see the fruit of them. And we should be encouraged to continue in prayer because even if it may not seem at the time that we are actually receiving the answer to our prayer, God is able to work and to be doing all kinds of things in response to us by his grace. So we ought to, we got to go to God in prayer diligently and earnestly and with faith, trusting that he is able to work in the best way possible and that he is gracious in responding to our prayers. This is what he did. He was mourning. He was praying. You see that in accompanying these things, there were some things that he avoided. What did he avoid? Well, he says, in those days I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth. This is not a complete and total fast. He just abstains from eating uh, meat And from eating tasty food, some of you are saying, I thought that was the same thing. But here you have him abstaining from things that would have been not the entirety of his diet, but just some of them, things that he could enjoy. And also wine did not enter his mouth. Now, by the way, just as a side note, this would indicate that it was his practice on at least some other occasions to eat tasty food, to eat meat, and to drink wine, which many people today seem to think are forbidden with as part of a faithful life before God. This tells us the opposite. Daniel would be in the practice of eating tasty food, of eating meat, 
and of drinking wine. That's not a command to do any of those things, but it does allow for that to be part of a life that is faithful before God and tells us that these things are not intrinsically sinful before him as sometimes people would think. So then Daniel, does he abstains from these things that are enjoyable and he doesn't use any ointment at all or oil which would have had effects uh, would have had a significance of joy Um, it it would have had effects upon him even upon his skin that would have been uh, positive and here he is basically just putting himself into a state of going through some uh, symbolic and yet real hardships while he is mourning a bit akin to the kind of fasting and sackcloth and ashes that you might often see people when they're grieving over their sin but this is a little bit different either way there is some seriousness going on and it's accompanied with mourning it is accompanied with mourning you say well what is he mourning about why is he mourning? I thought that his prayer had been answered and there's no other circumstances that we see here. Well, when we look at the timing of this in the third year of the Cyrus, the king of Persia, and we understand what's going on in the book of Ezra, it seems logical to conclude that Daniel knows something about what has gone on with the opposition to the rebuilding of the temple and the opposition to God that this represents. This that he was dealing with was a matter of great urgency it was a matter of urgency. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at when he is doing this. On the 4th, in verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month. 24th day of the first month. This was through the time where the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were to take place on the Jewish calendar. Now, whether Daniel had the privilege of participating in something like that would be another matter because he's far off they can't do all that comes with that that would normally take place in the temple Uh, but for him to fast in this way or at least do this partial fast uh, during this time would have been something very unusual and likely very something urgent either way Daniel is very serious about this particular matter and uh, what we find in Daniel is someone who is deeply concerned about God's purposes about God's people, even to the very end of his life. This is the last chronological event that we have in Daniel's life, this vision of chapters 10 through 12. We don't know how long he lived after this, but we we do know that he had been in Babylon for now some 70 years. Uh, He was already a young man when he was brought there, so he is at least into his 80s. So he's certainly not on the front end of his life. And here is Daniel, unable for whatever reason to go back to the land, still in Babylon, perhaps because he was not permitted as a servant of the king, perhaps because of uh, his age, unable to make the journey for several hundred miles to go and do this. Perhaps he was not needed, or perhaps he just decided that he uh, was going to stay and this wasn't his to go to. Either way, the fact that he wasn't there didn't mean that he didn't care about God's purposes. And he didn't take this being distant from what God was doing personally as a reason to pout or to pity himself. He also didn't spend his latter years in self-indulgence and just sort of reaping the rewards of ease for a life lived through difficulty. After all, now the persecution of Daniel is over, isn't it? I mean, Daniel, he's even made it through this uh, lion's den incident. So couldn't he just kind of kick back and enjoy himself? No, he, to the end, 
cared for his people. He cared for God's purposes. He cared about God's promises so much that he did what was very optional and not required at all, giving up these things, mourning, devoting himself to prayer in an intense and urgent way for three entire weeks. Daniel shows us a model of what it means to be faithful all through life and all the way toward the end in his concern for other people, his concern for God, his concern for what God is doing in the world and not just living a life of self-indulgence. And God heard this prayer. God sent someone to answer this prayer. Daniel's prayer was heard. Verse 12, don't be afraid, Daniel. From the first day you set your heart on understanding this and humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I've come in response to your words. This tells us that whatever the vision is going to say, whatever the manner of transmission of this, the messenger or messengers that God sends, and then the content of the message that is brought, this prophecy, though God has planned all this out ahead of time, it is nonetheless in response to Daniel's particular desires concerning God's purposes for his people and their current plight and the suffering that they were going through and the opposition that they were facing. Daniel gets an answer to this, and the answer is going to be found in what we will look at in the weeks ahead. And so next time, we will see not only that God has answered prayer, but just how it is that God answers Daniel's prayer. Let's ourselves go to the Lord in prayer together as we close for this morning. Father, thank you for this, uh, this message from Daniel about his earnestness to further your purposes, his concern for the things of you. We pray that we might have the same eagerness and the same dedication to you and your your plans, your people, your desires, your glory. And may you help us to have confidence in your hearing of our prayers. May we be the kind of people who would not only have our prayers heard, but also that would eagerly desire to pray such things. Align our hearts to what you would want us to love and to want. We pray that you might be honored by the outcome of all that you do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.